0: And you know, the interesting thing is when you feel dismissed immediately as a Black person, I think it's because I'm Black, right? And so when I originally sought out to write this book, at first I wanted to write it about medical racism. But then I thought about all the patients I've seen in my career and all the women I've treated who've come to me who said their previous doctor didn't listen to them, all the folks with mental illness, disabilities, elder patients, Folks with obesity who felt like their doctors dismissed their concern or blamed everything on their weight. And I felt that this was something that had to be way bigger than race. And if I'm going to do it, I need to include some of these broader categories that make us more vulnerable to being dismissed in healthcare.
1: From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned. On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale trained MD shares about all things women's health. From periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way. And how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Have you ever felt you were treated differently by a medical professional due to your skin color, age, ethnicity, gender, or for any other reason? If so, you are far from alone. Here's the uncomfortable truth. Ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, age, body size, and other factors have a significant bearing on whether you will be diagnosed and treated correctly. Healthcare providers and their patients are human, and all humans have conscious and unconscious biases that affect how we listen, observe, and act. Bias impacts patients when we're at our most vulnerable, and healthcare bias can mean the difference not just between suffering and relief, but between life and death. For the first time, an author with the unique perspective of being one of America's top doctors, a woman, and an African-American woman candidly addresses the issue of bias in healthcare, sharing personal and patient stories and pragmatic solutions. My guest today, Angela Marshall, MD FACP is the founder of Comprehensive Women's Health Inc., a primary care practice for women. A board certified internist and a fellow of the American College of Physicians, she has impacted the lives of thousands of women by emphasizing patient centered, empathic listening. She's been featured repeatedly as a top doctor in the Washingtonian magazine and a contributing health expert on CNN, Fox News, PBS News, and OWN. Dr. Marshall currently chairs the board of directors for the Black Women's Health Imperative, and she's the author of the new book that we're here to discuss today with all of its important, important concepts dismissed, tackling the biases that undermine our healthcare. Angela, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: And congratulations, you have a book coming out. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a labor of love. A total pleasure. Did you ever imagine you were going to write a book? Never. Never? (laughs) Never had a, no, never had any idea that I'd write a book. (laughs) Wow, this is huge.
1: It's compellingly written. It's a page turner. And I just want to emphasize, I love the title. Dismissed is a word that I have used in my books for decades, empathizing with patients and have had more women and people than I can count, use that word about how they felt entering a healthcare scenario, a healthcare consultation in every setting, pretty much. I'm just going to dive right into the deep end here with you. Sure. Can we start by talking about Dr. Susan Moore? You knew her personally. yeah. I don't think most of my listeners know who she is, yeah. how she was dismissed, and what happened.
0: Yeah. So first of all, Dr. Susan Moore and I went to high school together, and uh, we had a couple things in common. Uh, one is that we were both physicians, and we also both were engineers as undergrads. So she majored in engineering first and then became a doctor, was Great, just the sweetest person. And she unfortunately developed COVID. This is pre-vaccine COVID. And she was seen at a hospital in Indiana and she was having severe, severe neck pain And Susan was not the type to complain at all, you know, as most doctors, you know, not to make us any more (laughs) tough than anyone else, but she just wasn't a complainer. And so the fact that she was having this excruciating pain and complaining about it, she felt that she wasn't being heard. And in a moment of absolute helplessness, she decided to upload a video of her experience to social media. And I can tell you, as her friend, it was not just me, but several of our other friends, we saw the video when she uploaded it. And we were checking in on her like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? How is Susan doing? And I won't go into the details of the video, but the gist of it was that, you know, she was complaining of her pain. She wasn't being listened to, and she maintained, if she were not Black, that she felt that this would be going very differently. And needless to say, her video went viral. After the video, things went silent, and we didn't hear from Susan for a while, and we were asking each other, hey, have you guys heard from Susan? You know, we're checking on social media, you know, reaching out to her. And unfortunately, you know, the worst thing was that she passed away from complications of COVID uh, several days later. And so, that really resonated with me, not only because I knew her personally, but because I had experienced that same feeling of being dismissed in a healthcare setting, even being a doctor and. Let's just say being a doctor doesn't put us in any special categories, but what it does is when you're a physician and you feel dismissed, you you think, well, hey, I can advocate for myself. I know what I'm supposed to be getting. God forbid, you know, someone doesn't know what they're supposed to be getting, and they may think that this is what they're supposed to get. And so it's just very sad. And, you know, it's, it's something that I had to do in her honor.
1: I'm so sorry that you lost a friend and I just felt like I'm always apologizing on behalf of the system too. You know, that anybody would be treated that way and die as a result. And there's so many little pieces there that I want to tease out that I know we'll get more into, but there were three really, I think, significant phenomena that you mentioned. One, she's a woman. Two, she's a black woman. And the fact that she had pain. And we know that women's pain is often dismissed. Black women's pain is more likely to be dismissed. And that goes back to slavery tropes and that still impact black women. And even like we look at the statistics, for example, on maternal mortality. She Mm. was educated. And we can think of Serena Williams in arguably Mm -hmm. the most powerful, recognizable athlete in the world or black woman in the world, practically. Yeah, And she had to fight to advocate for herself. And we know statistically around maternal mortality, even the wealthiest and most educated black woman is more likely to have adverse outcomes and even die in childbirth than a high school educated white woman in a low socioeconomic setting. So these are some big, big pieces and big biases that you mentioned right out of the gate.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you know, the interesting thing is when you feel dismissed immediately as a Black person, I think it's because I'm Black, right? And so when I originally sought out to write this book, at first I wanted to write it about medical racism. But then I thought about all the patients I've seen in my career and all the women I've treated who've come to me who said their previous doctor didn't listen to them all the folks with mental illness, disabilities, elder patients, folks with obesity who felt like their doctors dismissed their concern or blamed everything on their weight. And I felt that this was something that had to be way bigger than race. And if I'm going to do it, I need to include some of these broader categories that make us more vulnerable to being dismissed in healthcare.
1: interesting too, because you mentioned your patients coming to you saying they'd been previously dismissed. And when I have a patient who comes to me and says that, I look her square in the eyes and I say, I believe you. Yes, exactly. Because one of the phenomena that happens, and this has been statistically borne out, right? When a person goes from one doctor to the next and says, my last doctor didn't listen to me, then the next doctor is more likely to label them with a
0: psychiatric problem or a mental health issue. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it's one of those things where It makes sense because as women, we typically have different symptoms, right? And that's because we're different from men, (laughs) you know, physiologically, you know, it's not just the reproductive organs that make us different. We are different through and through. And so it makes sense that we may present differently. We may not, you know, present with male symptoms that are recorded in our textbooks. And so when we have symptoms that are different or may not be textbook, that doesn't mean we're not sick. It just means that we're presenting differently. And so we need people to believe us when we say we're not feeling well. And that's not always the case. Totally. And even women who do present with typical symptoms, like women who are having
1: chest pain, nausea, shoulder pain, they're in the ER, they're in the hospital, they're more likely to be given an anxiety medication or pain medication where a man presenting with the exact same symptoms is going to get an appropriate workup for a heart attack. And that's why so many women's heart attacks get missed in the hospital. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, I can't tell you how many patients I've seen that have had legitimate heart disease that were diagnosed with anxiety. In fact, I had one patient whose uh, male doctor told her she just needed transcendental meditation because she was anxious. She happened to be a black woman. She happened to be overweight and she suffered from anxiety. And so the intersection of all three of those, who knows what the, the issue was for him to, you know, just zero in on the anxiety, but he told her she needed anxiety reducing measures like meditation Well, I sent her to another cardiologist, a woman who I called and advocated on her behalf before the visit with, and come to find out one of her coronary arteries was 95% blocked. And within another two years, she had open heart surgery. And so, you know, these things, like you said, this is not just about, you know, feelings. This is about life and death. And it really does Make a difference when people are not listened to in the healthcare setting. Are you okay
1: staying in the deep end with me? I wouldn't ask, but you share a story right at the beginning of your book that just took my breath away. Susan isn't the only one that you know that experienced profound medical dismissal. You did. And I wonder if you'd be willing. I know in your book, you just go right there and say that you hadn't shared the story of your son so publicly before. So many of my audience. Our mamas. And I think if you're willing to share it, it would be just a gift if you are comfortable with that.
0: Yeah. Well, interesting. My son's name was Nathan, which means a gift from God. And I had him during my last year of medical school. And, you know, I'm a pretty big planner. Like I like to plan everything and I planned everything so perfectly. I would have him and I'd have several months off to take care of him before starting residency. And um, when things didn't go as planned, we found out that he had uh, a birth defect. It's called posterior urethral valves. It was pretty severe. And he was born with some abnormalities, but he was doing well, making progress. And we were waiting for him to get old enough for transplantation, for kidney transplant. And so one day he was uh, four months old And he had an appointment at the hospital with his doctor that day, but he happened to wake up and his eyes were moving in different directions. And he just looked to be in like a lot of distress. He was breathing fast. And so I called the hospital ahead and said, hey, you know, we're on our way, but I know he's coming for a routine appointment, but he's really sick. Something's really wrong. And we were only a few minutes from the hospital. So we got there right away. And immediately, you know, I'm like, finally, we're here, you know, here, 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 you guys need to, you know, see what's going on. And immediately, I felt that the doctor didn't share my concern. He just kind of like I was on a 1000. And he was just like, Oh, okay, well, we're gonna, you know, get him admitted. And so we'll get him a bed. And so after about 15 minutes or so, you know, just nothing was happening. Like they weren't treating him. They just left us in a room. The nurse would come in every so often. And I called the doctor back. I said, Hey, what's going on? Oh, well, we're waiting for a bed. Well, Hey, you know, the hospital is full, but you know, you can't wait to treat him. Can't you start treating him now? You know, and, um, long story short, he kept saying, Oh no, we'll just wait until we get him into bed." and so I kept calling the doctor back. The doctor kept saying, oh, he's fine. And then finally, I was like literally yelling, like, look, you guys need to do something. He he was actually breathing 100 times a minute. His respiratory rate was 100 times a minute. And I knew from pediatrics that in kids, the respiratory rate is a big deal. Like that's a big indicator of distress. I even said, I said, how much longer do you think he can breathe a hundred times a minute? Like he's going to give out, like what, what's taking so long, you know? And so I was pretty much at the point of being indignant and I was about to take him downstairs to the emergency room instead. And just as we were about to go down, the doctor came back and he reassured me and he said, look, I know you're, you know, upset or nervous about this. He says, but I've been doing this for 30 years and I see this all the time. We're going to get him admitted, get him tanked up and he'll be back to himself in no time. And so at that point, I thought, oh, wow, you know, I'm here. I am overreacting. Let me just trust the doctor. And um, let him do his job, you know, because I was a medical student. And so I was also, you know, I, I knew enough to know that things weren't right. But then again, I wasn't a doctor yet. You know what I mean? And so when he kind of like reassured me and talked me down, then I felt almost guilty. Like, oh, gosh, you know, did I overdo it? And, you know, I don't want them to think that I'm a difficult, you know, mom. and The last time he left the room, the nurse was there, and within a few minutes of him leaving, my son stopped breathing, and his heart stopped, and he coded, and he passed away, and, you know, I have to tell you, that was the worst day of my life, the worst day of my life, and I mean, I can't even, I don't even have words to describe, you know, how Not only to have the pain of the loss, but to also have the pain of feeling abandoned and mistreated and dismissed, right? And it it took me literally over twenty years to even be able to speak about it. Like I had to go to therapy. You know, I I can talk about it now because you know I've had, you know, time to to heal, but as if that weren't bad enough, I had one month left to graduate medical school. And it just so happened that last rotation that I had to complete was in the same hospital where I lost my son, the children's hospital. And in order to graduate, that was the only hospital that that rotation was offered in. And so Every day for a month, I had to go back to that same hospital where he passed away and where we had that awful experience with the doctor. And so I remember the first day of my rotation, I sat outside the hospital on on a bench and I almost quit. I mean, it was so difficult. I mean, talk about PTSD. I mean, because it was still fresh, you know. And I remember sitting on the bench and I thought to myself, you know, I don't have to do this. I I could quit right now. And then I thought, but how can I best honor my son? And for me in that moment, the best way for me to honor my son was to go in there and get my degree, finish medical school and become a better doctor, than what I experienced on that day. And that has been my driving force ever since. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening. I don't know
1: how you got up and did that every day, a month, a year, after a loss like that in that setting. It took an incredible amount of courage and dedication. And you had a toddler also?
0: Yeah, I had a toddler. He's 27 now. Wow.
1: So you also had a toddler expecting you to come back home with his baby brother.
0: Exactly.
1: And a partner going through whatever he was going through with loss. That's a lot. That's a lot. It was a
0: lot. It was a lot. One of the things
1: that women who have shared with me that they've had a more extreme situation like yours with a, a loss at the end of dismissal sometimes feel guilty themselves Mm -hmm. as if they should have advocated harder. They should have been able to
0: overcome the system in some way. Did you go through any of that? Oh, yeah, I did. In fact, for the longest, I felt like, you know, why didn't I just go to the emergency room, just go downstairs to the emergency room? But actually, I said it out loud. I said it to my ex-husband. I said, you know, we should just take him to the emergency room. And then I said, well, but they're just going to call the same doctor right back because that was his doctor, his main doctor, you know. And then I thought about him treating him differently if I were too, you know, aggressive, if you will. So it was just a very complex situation. I feel like I said all that I could without being belligerent and, you know, getting kicked out of the hospital, you know, but that still wasn't enough. Is there you anything know. you wish you could go back and tell yourself as that
1: young med student mama who was being told to trust this doctor with decades of experience, even though your gut was screaming something different? Like, what would you go back now and give yourself as grace or a gift?
0: I think I would give myself the confidence and courage to stand my ground and to stand up, even. You know, when it was uncomfortable, even when he tried to reassure me for me to insist and say, no, that's not the case. I need you to treat my son or else I'm going downstairs to the emergency room. And, you know, and at, at that point, it was so late in the process anyways, you know, but, you know, it's really tough for patients because as a patient, you're so vulnerable you know, and the power dynamic that exists between doctor and patient. It's interesting feeling that as a patient, especially now as a physician, you know, when I go to the doctor's office now, even, you know, it's a totally different feeling. You know, I actually feel the vulnerability, you know, of being the patient and I don't have any control and, you know, It's very profound and it's a difference. And so I try to keep that at the top of mind with every patient that I see is that how vulnerable they are, you know, coming in and and how sensitive they may be even to the whole power dynamic. Like, you know, they're vulnerable, they're sick, and they don't know if I'm going to give them what they need, you know. And so I try to keep that in mind when I'm delivering care, just because I think that, you know, keeps us grounded and it, it helps us to better connect with the patients.
1: Yeah, I feel like as physicians, I mean, we can certainly call on the doctor card if we need to get something expedited. We have our colleagues and friends to turn to, but if your child is sick, you're not a doctor. In that moment, you're a mama. Exactly. I feel like it's also incredibly unfair and unfortunate that people have to manage their medical encounters and even manage and anticipate the emotions and biases of the providers. Like you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't want to appear this way. I don't want to appear that way. And studies have shown, for example, that women who suffer from pain actually will alter the way they dress, sit and talk in a doctor's office because they don't want to get perceived as like overly put together because then they're dismissed as like, well, if she looks that good, she's probably not in that much pain or too disheveled because then it's like, oh, well, she's clearly drug seeking because we have all these visual biases. It's just really unfair and unfortunate. And I wonder how you encourage women and also especially black women Mm -hmm. To address and overcome medical dismissal or even overt bias in real-time setting, like you're Mm -hmm. in the ED, you're in the birthing room, you're in a pediatric appointment, and without getting further labeled as, and I'm doing air quotes here because y'all can't see me, as a difficult patient, or for Black women who have told me they fear also being labeled by the kind of caricature of a loud Black woman,
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: mm-hmm. even in some cases with parents and black parents, particularly, there have been some cases where social services have been called mm-hmm. when parents have questions. So, mm-hmm. and of course we can do this for our patients. We can have the empathy in our clinical setting or if we're the one meeting the patient at the hospital, but sure. that's not the case for so many encounters. So how do you think that people can respond in those moments mm-hmm. and advocate?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, I think it's important to have someone else who can advocate on your behalf as well. And so and that's because when we're seeking health care, oftentimes we're in our most vulnerable states. Right. So we may not be feeling well. We may not you know, have the energy to even advocate, you know, on our own. And so I think it's important to have, whether it's a spouse or friend or family member, whether they're there in person or just on speed dial. So if you feel like you're in trouble, if you have a doctor in the family or any healthcare care nurse, you know, someone in the family who's knowledgeable and who can advocate on your behalf, I think that's important to have in your back pocket, so to speak. I also think it's important to use the right language when you do feel like you're not being listened to. So I kind of go back to the I statements like they use in psychology and say, hey, you know, I feel like you may not be getting the gist of how I'm really feeling, or I feel like you may not be understanding how much pain I'm having. Your response doesn't seem to match the level of discomfort I'm having. I just want to emphasize that I'm really suffering and I hope that you can help, you know. And so using I statements to kind of Call them out. And, you know, the third thing I would say is it's so incredibly important to find the right physicians or providers who are going to listen to you. And so, you know, I almost think of, you know, people who seem dismissive as uh, it's like a warning sign. If someone's not listening to you, they're not making eye contact they're not validating what you're saying like you say I'm in pain and they're not saying anything they're just staring into their computer or you know that's not a good sign so you want someone that is going to be you know responsive to your complaints and responsive to your needs and i think that goes a long way not, not every doctor has the you know bedside manner that you know, we we desire but Uh, there's certain must haves, I'm sorry, you know, there's certain things that, you know, you at least have to look at me and pretend like you care if you don't feel it in the (laughs) moment. But you know, give me something. (laughs) Because, you know, your health is just too important to, you know, trust it, you know, with anyone. So I think, hey, we've got choices. And we've got to, as women, we have to exercise our choices. 100% agree. I want to just emphasize, so I
1: feel like we have to almost exercise our muscles of trusting our gut and not feeling like we have to be the good girl, the nice girl. Why do you think it is that we so often just override our inner knowing? And do you see that happening a lot?
0: I do. And I think part of it is socialization. It's for the same reason that sometimes we, you know, don't raise our hands in class, you know, or when we go in a conference room, we don't sit at the table. We sit in the side seat, you know. It's those kinds of things that I think we've been socialized to do. It starts at birth, you know. And so I am very grateful to be in a country where women have so many freedoms, you know, But they're not enough. (laughs) So we still have some serious issues and we're socialized, you know, a certain way that that I think it affects our ability to be assertive, even in normal situations, let alone when we're feeling badly. It's so true. I tell my patients and just like
1: women I teach and my online community, I'm like, if your food is too salty at the restaurant, it's a great time to practice sending it back. If you get sent the wrong meal, it's a great time. These are little moments in life where you can exercise that confidence and assertiveness. Practice in front of the mirror if you have to. Script out what you want to say to your doctor ahead of time so that if you get nervous in that setting, you can go back to your notes. Just be prepared, but practice exercising that skill.
0: I think that's a great point, you know, have a plan A, a plan B, like, what if they don't give me what I want? What, you know, what am I going to say in that event? And I think that's a great point. As women, you know, we have to you know, work on standing up for ourselves. And, you know, sometimes it's even, you know, relationships cause us to be less assertive. And so making sure that we're assertive, you know, in our relationships and our interactions at at work and in the healthcare setting, I think we could all use support and, you know, encouragement on that. And have each other's backs as women too when we're doing it. Exactly.
1: I want to talk about this. We know from numerous studies now, for example, that black babies cared for by black doctors in the newborn period are much more likely to thrive and survive than black babies who are cared for by white or non-black doctors. And that kind of study has been repeated across different settings. And I know that it's, you know, something you talk about in the book, incredibly important. You're like one of 2% of primary care physicians that are black women. I mean, that is just astonishing to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we need to encourage a lot more diversity in medical education. And also, I want to ask you something about that. So half of all primary care doctors are women, but we're still kind of barreling down this very dangerous road in medicine now with increasing diabetes, increasing obesity, increasing maternal mortality. Half of all OB-GYNs are women now. And one thing that really also struck me is, you know, the story of Tyre Nichols, who was a black man in Memphis, beaten by five black police officers. And I remember watching the videos, which I intentionally watched. I wanted to really understand what was happening to the best I could. And I remember thinking, how could this happen? And I listened to Van Jones, who's Mm -hmm. a commentator. I think he's quite intelligent. And he said that when we enter a system Mm. that is inherently racist Mm
0: -hmm.
1: or sexist or Mm. ageist or any of the things, that it doesn't inherently matter. It should. But whether you're black or you're a woman or whatever the ism is that you would be treated as a victim of, you can still be so indoctrinated in that system Mm So that as a Black police officer, you're still like neurologically ingrained to see a Black man as a threat Mm -hmm. and a a potential person who should just be pulled over at a stop sign profiled and accosted like that. And he was beaten and ultimately died three days later. Mm -hmm. And you and I, I'm sure, know of women. I can think of quite a few. We had one doctor. Her last name was Horowitz. And let me just say (laughs) her nickname was Horror by the other residents and doctors and she treated women horribly mm-hmm. so we need more diversity in the system we need more women we need mm-hmm. more black women we need more black people we need more older students we need more people who are differently abled but how do we still make sure that the system isn't as Bob Marley would say getting inside their heads right yeah
0: That's so true. And you use the right word. It's indoctrination, you know, and it's interesting because a friend, a colleague of mine and I were just talking about how as physicians, we're indoctrinated. Everyone is like our training, you know, think of how many hours and how we push ourselves. We work sick. We, you know, don't take vacations. You know, we put off going to the bathroom, eating, you know, all our basic needs, you know? And so we are indoctrinated to suffer and to put our personal needs, you know, last in caring for the patients, which interesting enough, that's not good for patient care because we're not operating at our best selves, you know? And so I think that part of it Is changing the system because the system is broken (laughs) in some places more than others. But overall, I'd say the US healthcare system is broken in many ways. And so From physician reimbursement to just, you know, all the hassles and administrative paperwork, and it's just so many, you know, the number of patients that you have to see just to make a living wage and, you know, pay your staff, it's just very onerous, and I think that the system has to change. And so I think we're all indoctrinated into this system. And in order for it to change, in order for us to change, the system has to change. But I agree, we can advocate for more women physicians or more Black physicians or more every other group, but the system is broken. And, you know, just having a Black person treating a Black patient may not be the answer although we need representation in the healthcare system for everyone.
1: Agreed, totally not mutually exclusive. We need yeah. it and we need the system to change. One of the things that I know that you're concerned about and I'm concerned about is that the constant dismissal that people experience when they go to the doctor's office Like me, I'm sure that you've seen patients, for example, I can think of more than one patient who was afraid to go to the doctor when I was working in hospital or clinic, and she'd put off abdominal pain for six months or 12 months or more, kind of just sucking it up or ignoring it or saying, oh, it's probably just digestion or hormonal, only to finally, sadly, end up with a diagnosis of ovarian cancer or you know, sometimes more benign situations where somebody's had rampantly out of control, hypertension or diabetes, all the things. Right. And so I'm sure that each of us can cite a thousand of examples of people who were too afraid to go and didn't go. Mm -hmm. And another thing that's happening thanks to the internet, which is a beautiful thing that people can be more empowered and find information that they need. And sometimes that they're not getting from their doctor, but Another thing that's happening is people are scouring the internet for answers Mm -hmm. that may or may not be reliable because they don't feel like they can go to the doctor and sometimes for serious situations. And so I wonder how we can help people and how the medical system can help people to overcome personal mistrusts that Mm -hmm. have happened from direct insults or hearing about a story from a family member or friend, decades of insults. Mm -hmm. and centuries of insults. I mean, when I think of Tuskegee, that wasn't actually that long ago. Mm -hmm. So what
0: does the system need to do to rebuild trust? Well, I think it's on the system. It's on the physicians and the healthcare providers to build trust with the community, with our patients. It's on us because I think you're right. We have seen a lot of patient disengagement Because, you know, if you have a bad experience, then what do you do? You pull away, you disengage. And, you know, a lot of patients end up doing what I call DIYing their health, you know, They go to their own devices. You know, sometimes they're going to natural supplements and things, trying to self-medicate and things. And that's not the answer. But I think as physicians, we have got to raise the bar. We've got to work on building trust with our communities, with our patients. And I think that is the only way that it's going to change, is that we have to make a concerted effort to rebuild trust. And there are many ways we can do that but I think we have to care enough to even try in the first place.
1: Now, you mentioned natural supplements and in getting ready for our interview, I spent a little time on your Instagram. And I know in your book, you do talk about your concerns about people going to natural supplements. And my sense that I got from you and also your Instagram, because, you know, as an herbalist, I of course noticed your lovely post on turmeric and ginger you weren't feeling so great i think you maybe had some cold symptoms coming on and you said you went to some of your favorite medicines so my sense in reading the book and hanging out on your you know your own personal stuff is that it's not that you're opposed to natural supplements or integrative approaches it's that you are concerned when people are using those without guidance there's just an insane amount of unregulated misinformation on the internet. I spend so much time at each patient appointment saying why that test or that supplement or that mm-hmm. diet is not what it's cracked yeah. up to be. Yeah. So you're, my sense is that you're more just wanting to make sure that people are also getting the medical care they need. But I'm curious, because respect and empathy are such deep parts of how you practice and are as a human and a physician, how do you handle it? Yeah. When you have someone who, let's say, is a 65-year-old, 70-year-old African-American woman who remembers her grandmother talking about Tuskegee. She grew up in the South, and now it's COVID, and she's like, yeah, Dr. Marshall, I'm not getting vaccinated. Or she has a diagnosis and says, well, Dr. Marshall, I'm going to do the celery juice diet. How do you meet people where they, they change? are? Mm-hmm. and honor where they are, and also insert yourself in what you feel you're there to deliver?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, so first of all, I do embrace all forms of medicine, including, and I, and I feel like the true complement does include everything. It includes the natural, the allopathic, the whole thing, you know. But I think one of the things that I do often is I explain the importance of randomized controlled clinical trials. Because a lot of time people have anecdotal knowledge or, you know, facts. And they say, oh, well, this person had the exact same symptom that I had and they took this supplement and they got better. So therefore the supplement will work for me. And so one of the things that I try to explain is why that doesn't always work out and why we do the clinical research to begin with is to prove, because we want to have a, a control group and a treatment group. And once you can, you know, study those two different groups and get, you know, different results, then you can say the treatment works for sure scientifically. And so I think for one thing is we've got to do uh, a better job of, uh, teaching our young kids and even our college students the importance of scientific fundamentals and understanding data and how we come to make, you know, conclusions about medical treatments and things like that. And understanding that just because I saw a treatment or something on TikTok it doesn't mean that it's true. And so I think that right now is a very potentially dangerous time because I have lots of patients who come to me and say, I saw this thing on TikTok and they said that, you know, this is caused from that. And they said, I might have that. And, you know, <laughs> making sure that we remind our patients that, you know, it's important to have a medical advisor or, or medically trained professional who's guiding our care and not just doing it on our own, just because it can be so detrimental by trying to be our own, you know, our own doctors.
1: We watched a television show recently, and we usually watch movies and are not watching commercial TV with commercials. And I was shocked. It was a an evening program. And every commercial was two drug ads, two drug ads. And, you know, it's always this thing like there was one that was for eczema. And I was like, all right, eczema is uncomfortable, but it's not going to kill you unless you get some bizarre secondary infection that you don't get treated. Like the chance mm-hmm. of eczema killing you, pretty much none. And it was one of those medications like, do not use this drug. If you have da, 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 da. the side effects of this drug can be, <laughs> you know, poor sleep, bleeding from your gums and death. But similarly, I have patients who come in and are like, I saw this pharmaceutical on TV and I'm still having to do some of the same education because we know those aren't always the best drugs for the job either.
0: Exactly. And sometimes they don't even have the condition that the medicine is for and they're asking about the medicine. And so, yeah, I agree. And I I I don't know why the pharmaceutical companies even advertise on television because they have to list all those side effects in order to <laughs> advertise. To yeah, the public. it's a cash and cow, who- though.
1: One of the biases that I would love to touch on before we go is fat shaming. Mm-hmm. And I read a statistic that something like, and I think you may talk about this in the book too, but 70% mm-hmm. of doctors. Mm -hmm. have reported discomfort working with people in, I'm just going to say, larger bodies, bigger bodies, Mm -hmm. curvier bodies. Mm -hmm. And a study I read that said that percentage of doctors actually reported being disgusted or having disdain Mm -hmm. for people in bigger bodies. And another study showed that people who are in bigger bodies actually get better care on telemedicine. Mm. Because they're not typically seen yeah. from the neck down. Yeah. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? You did a survey of 300 people. What are you hearing and concerned about? And encourage people to do around fat shaming.
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, I believe in body positivity and just embracing, you know, yourself. When I have the conversations with patients, it's about health and it's subjective. You know, one of the things that I hear repeatedly, both from patients and from our pulse survey, is that uh, patients say that, you know, when they're overweight, that no matter what they complain about to their physicians, that they blame everything on their weight. Like I have. You know, pain in my elbow. Well, oh, it's just because you've got too much weight pressing on your bone. And if you lost weight, it would probably go away. And so I think that is, in essence, a form of dismissal, you know, when they absolutely blame and everything. Dangerous. Yeah, blame everything on their weight. And it, it's complex, though, because. There are certain situations where, you know, you do want patients to lose weight for their health, right? I've had a couple recently where they've been postponed from having knee surgery because the surgeon wants them to lose, you know, just a huge amount of weight that is impossible for the patient. Like I had one person, she said that he wouldn't even consider Doing her knee replacement, unless she at least lost 50 pounds. And for someone to lose 50 pounds, that's a big undertaking, you know. And so now she's got bone on bone in her knees. And so she has to suffer, you know, she can't really exercise with, you know, so it's really, yeah, there's so many forms of the fat shaming going on. Mm-hmm. But I think that, again, you know, for f- patients who are plus size or, you know, have larger bodies, It's important to go where you feel comfortable. And so I want for everyone to be seen when they go to the doctor, they should feel seen and feel heard and not, you know, be objectified or not be dismissed because of some physical characteristics. And so I think we can trust our intuition as women. And we know when we're with providers who actually care about us and are not, you know, focusing too much on whatever distracting characteristic that offends them.
1: I think there's so many important things in that that I just want to pull out a little, if you don't mind. And Mm -hmm. one is just that I've heard the same thing of surgeries being put off, but also patients who have had fertility treatments put off being told they couldn't birth vaginally, they had to labor because Mm -hmm. they may have had a high risk pregnancy, but it doesn't mean they have a high risk labor and birth. Mm -hmm. And I'm really concerned that we conflate weight with health. So yes, Mm -hmm. there's a point where with Mm -hmm. very significant obesity, it becomes a health risk, but we also know that people can be in bigger bodies, have perfectly healthy blood sugar, cholesterol, heart, brain, bone, Uh, Being underweight is actually also a significant risk. My heart just goes out to women who are in a medical setting. It's hard enough to speak up for ourselves when we're being dismissed. But when you're being dismissed and shamed about something that's such a cultural phenomenon of looking a certain way, Mm -hmm. I think it just makes people shrink and shut down and not speak up and then not get the treatment. And you said that it's so important that as women, we know, that we trust, that we know. Mm -hmm. And I think this comes, you know, when you're in a relationship and somebody's not treating you well, how often as women do we say, oh, Mm -hmm. it's because, oh, they must be tired. They must be in a bad mood. I must have done something. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That trusting, that knowing, that Mm -hmm. feeling that you're not comfortable
0: is so important. It's so important. You know, one of the things that I had to teach my daughter very early on is how people treat you when you're vulnerable really matters, right? Pay attention to that, right? When you're sick or you're vulnerable or you're upset and someone mistreats you or doesn't listen to you, you know, that speaks volume. And so I think it's important as patients to pay attention to that as well. So you are a busy
1: author now, and you have a not-for-profit called Pre-Medical Explorers where you encourage and mentor young African-American high school students who want to become physicians, which is amazing. And you're seeing patients and you're a mom. How are you dealing with the time pressures that are already on physicians? in order to provide compassionate humble care and also take care of yourself
0: it is a real challenge i feel like a hypocrite just about every day <laughs> when i'm telling patients oh you should you know practice more self care and you know but one of the things that i do is i take breaks i can recognize when i've reached the brink of jumping out of a first floor window. <laughs> so, and so I take a lot of breaks. And I like, for example, I sometimes say I'm taking medical leave, I, I have to protect my mental health, you know, I have to take breaks, I have to guard against burnout, you know, because burnout with physicians is so common, just about everybody suffers from it from time to time. And so that is how I kind of keep it together. Every year, I take an entire month off. And so that is my time to, you know, relax, to catch up on things that I don't have time to do the rest of the year. And then I'm also kind of cutting back with patient care a little bit now that I've been practicing for, you know, 22 years. So it's, you just have to do what you have to do. But it's, it's really, really tough because I feel like as physicians, you know, we're, we're caregivers, right? And we always talk about people who take care of their loved ones, right? The, the risk to their health, right? I think one of the studies in the Journal of the American Medical Association said that caregivers who experience stress have like a 70% greater chance of dying, early premature death. And so, you know, we have to think of ourselves as caregivers because we're seeing patients every day. And so that puts us at risk if we're not careful. So That's a beautiful way to frame that. And I'm gonna bring
1: that to my students who are healthcare providers. I think it's so easy to forget that we are caregivers and caregiver burnout is very real. And as you said, I mean, everyone suffers in healthcare when the physician is burnt out. We know that it increases mistakes and irritability and dismissal and, and all the things. Tell us a little bit about Pre-Medical Explorers. It's really exciting. And I love the name, too.
0: Oh, yes, yeah, So great. So after Susan passed away, uh, just because of how, how similar it was to my experience of feeling dismissed and, you know, how much I just cared about her and everything, I, along with two of our other classmates, came together and said, you know, how can we best honor her memory? And so we went back and forth and you know we we kind of resonated with that last statement she made was that I contend if I were not black that this would not be happening and so we thought well what if Susan had a black doctor would her outcome have been different and so we decided that that was going to be our our mission was to recruit and train more Black doctors. And so we decided to start at the high school that Susan and I and our classmates attended. And so we did um, a pilot a year and a half ago. And so we meet with the students and mentor them and try to spark their interest in science. And, you know, what we're finding is a lot of students who are kind of disadvantaged or may not have the exposure. A lot of students like never thought of being a physician, like, you know, they never thought that that was even a possibility. And so the most important thing we do is show up so that they can see Black doctors, they can see that it can be done. And it's been amazing. We've had such a great experience so far. and We look forward to growing the program to an even larger group. That's beautiful.
1: So I grew up in a housing project in New York with a single mom, but I had mm. the privilege of being in a white body. It gave me some advantages over many of the other members of my community mm-hmm. and had a mom who really also gave me a lot of extracurriculars at home. So I remember for me, I saw a PBS special when I was in 3rd or 4th grade and it was on a, a neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's it. I'm going to be a doctor. But I had no idea that I could be. I went to a private school for three years. I got a scholarship. I bust into it and developed a friendship with a woman who's still my best friend from middle school. And her father was a physician. So they lived in a very wealthy neighborhood. And he really said, you can do this. And you grew up in poverty. You sharing your story what was it that ignited that for you? And how did you know that you could do it? And you were, you are an engineer.
0: Yeah. So for me, uh, when I was about seven years old, my I also was raised by a single mom in poverty. And my mom was a smoker. And I just detested smoke. I just you know, it. I didn't like it. it you know, it gave me headaches. And, you know, back then they were smoking in cars and I can even remember going to the hospital. They were smoking in hospitals back then, you know. But so when I was about seven years old or seven or eight, I called the American Cancer Society to get some literature for my mom to help her stop smoking, because I had seen some stuff at school, and you know, <laughs> well, seen like the pictures of the yeah, <laughs> pictures of the black lungs and all that, and so. I called and requested, you know, some materials thinking they were just going to be a couple pamphlets. They sent me this big box of all these brochures and pictures and models and stuff. And so I read all the pamphlets from front to back and, you know, used the little gadgets to do little demonstrations to show my mom, this is why you can't smoke. This is why you have to stop smoking. Look at what your lungs probably Mm -hmm. look like, you know. And so that was a good exercise. And I think that was the thing that kind of sparked my intellectual curiosity for medicine.
1: Did you have teachers along the way or your mom that really said, okay, here's, here's a pathway or that just let you know you could do it?
0: Yeah. So that's a great question. So I knew zero physicians growing up zero, but my grandmother who was like, one of my first uh, mentors, she was a learned practical nurse, a two-year degree. And I remember telling her one, I used to love the way she smelled coming from the hospital. You know, like back then I think the, you know, the smell of ether or, you know, the soap <laughs> or, you know. And I can remember telling her one day, I said, Nani, I want to grow up and be a nurse just like you. And she looked me in my eyes as she said, well, don't just be a nurse. You should become a doctor. And, you know, the fact that she looked at me and said that I should do that, that made me feel like I could do that. And that was like everything. That's all I needed to hear. But when I went to college, um, I had planned to do pre-med or, you know, to go to medical school, but I barely had resources for college. And so, I decided to major in engineering because I said, look, if I stop at the four-year degree, I want to make sure I can make a good living. And I was interested in engineering. And I actually had a family friend who was an engineer. And so I was interested enough, you know, in the field. And so I really enjoyed it actually. But uh, after working as an engineer, I realized there was one thing missing and that was helping people. And I learned that I needed to have Social interactions. I don't know if you saw the recent article about the importance of having social interactions in the workplace. And that loneliness, you know, leads to unhappiness, you know, in the workplace. And so I experienced that as a woman engineer, just feeling so isolated because I worked with all these guys that just wanted to, you know, peck away on their computers all day. And so (laughs) I'm like, you know, I'm wasting my personality. You know, I need to feel like I'm helping people. So I was doing a lot of community service after work. And I realized that, hey, if I did medicine, I could have that, you know, part of me fulfilled in my daily work. So when you finally went to
1: medical school, did you learn like I did that nurses are actually the ones who run the show?
0: Absolutely. Yes, I did. I (laughs) should. Right, and they're honorary engineers too, by the way, because they can rig up anything. You know, anything.
1: (laughs) Get you anything you need. Know those (laughs) patients. That's it. Are doing all the things that (laughs) keep it all going. That's right. Bear a lot of the burden of the system, and bear a lot of the burden of the horizontal and vertical abuse and biases that happen too. For sure. All right, lovely woman, you're incredible. Your book is incredible. We're gonna put everything in the show notes for where folks can reach you. The book is called Dismissed, Tackling the Biases That Undermine Our Healthcare by Angela Marshall, MD, with Kathy Palikoff, who also inserts some humor into the book. Yes. (laughs) And I have one question to ask you that I love to ask my guests before we go. Yes. If you could tell your younger self anything, anything, How old would she be and what would you say?
0: Mm, That's a great question. I think I would tell my 12-year-old self that you are more than enough.
1: Mm. Wow. Maybe we should all just say that to ourselves right this
0: minute.
1: Yeah. Angela, thank you. Thank you for sharing your personal stories about Susan and Nathan for your commitment to empathy and equity and kindness in healthcare. And for being here with me today in this really wonderful book.
0: I look forward to staying in touch and thank you for hosting. This has been amazing. Ah, the total pleasure. Thank you
1: everyone for listening. I know you're going to want to read this book. Learn more about Angela, find out more about her pre medical explorers and all the things she's doing. And we'll have all that for you in the show notes over at avivarom.com. And make sure to share this podcast because it's a really important episode for everyone who is going to enter the healthcare system. And for most of us, we have some encounters at some point in our lives that we do feel vulnerable. Thank yes. you for joining me, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, You can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.